You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's strumming my pain with his fingers and singing my life with his words. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge-Huge. Yes, uh, I did remember to wash my hands first, so at least you got that going for you. I, I do. What's <laughs> what's going on? How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing all right. And yourself? I'm fine. I Right before your phone call... I had received an email Mm -hmm. and it started out with, I know you don't follow the news, dot, dot, dot. And then there was like a big paragraph of like, let's just say it was pretty slanted. I don't even want to say slanted. It's what they call the the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Do you know what that is? I do. Okay. Well, in case somebody doesn't know, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is when somebody will say like a bunch of different things. It's almost like when a psychic makes predictions, and yes. whenever they finally get a hit, they draw a, a, a circle around it, and make it look like they got a bullseye. You know, it's, it's yes. like a, somebody shooting a bunch of bullets at the wall and then drawing the bullseyes around the hole. Anyway, the email said, I know you don't follow the news, but dot, dot, dot. And they had this big, long thing that just kind of leaned into some conspiracy theories. And I just sim- simply wrote her back, yeah, you're right. I don't follow the news. <laughs> It seems a simple answer. Yeah. It's a very elegant and polite way of saying, could you just kind of f*** off? Yeah. You know, I used to do that years ago, whatever people would like start harp, you know, harping to me about sports. I don't watch sports. I don't know how to talk to you about sports. I don't want to talk to you about sports. Right. So I would just ask them, you know, politely, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't talk to me about sports. And now that's how I am with the news. I'm a little more flexible if people send things to me but 90 percent of the time i try not to propagate any news irrespective of where i view it uh, uh-huh. in the spectrum of you know opinion or understanding of what the events are right happy to sit and talk in person even like this over a microphone with someone about current events sure but i don't ship articles around anymore i haven't done that in a long time and I don't react to them either when other people do because it's it never leads to a productive conversation. No. In my no, experience. absolutely not. Nobody's ever changed anybody's mind. You know? Right. Not overnight, not with one sentence. Anybody that has changed political affiliations over the years or somebody that has changed or lost religions over the years, it's a sunrise. Right. It's not a switch. Right, right. And you're more likely to piss somebody off and jeopardize a friendship than you are to change somebody's mind. So I just stay away from it. Yeah, I stay away from it too. I learned my lesson. It took a few experiences of me, you know, metaphorically burning my hand at the stove before I realized that I didn't want to put my hand in the stove anymore. 
Yeah. But uh, I don't do that anymore. What I do send around is stuff that's funny. Yeah. I'm all about sending funny, propagating funny stuff. Yeah. And sometimes there will be a political joke that I think is funny. Mm-hmm. And I will say to the person I'm telling the joke, I am on no side of this argument. I just can appreciate funny when I hear it. Right. And like, I don't want to have a debate about any of this. And the second they start, I'm like, okay, fine. I don't tell you jokes anymore. <laughs> right. I always fall into political jokes. Like, I know we've talked about this on the show, like an interview that I watched with Buddy Hackett when he was on the Tonight Show or something. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Carson asked him like, hey, you know, how do you feel about the current political scene? And he goes, I don't know. I don't write jokes about politics. Why would I put in the effort and talent and time to craft a joke that is going to have such a short shelf life? Right. It isn't funny for me. It's it's situationally funny, sure. If I'm talking with you about it and it comes up in banter, okay. But I, why would I put the energy in when I could put the energy into something that's going to last forever? Yeah, exactly. Com- I'm completely gonna... on board with that. And sit around making William Howard Taft jokes. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so, and also, you know, why alienate fifty percent of your crowd? We don't right. cover politics over here. Uh, Not on much. Twibley. I mean, it comes up, it comes up now and again. Yeah, but it's rare, it's, and it's, it's usually so in much... context. Yeah, it's not so much politics as it is history, you know. Let us, let us not forget our, our apparent quest to uh, rehabilitate the <laughs> reputation of Richard Milhouse Nixon. Yeah, I was just we? about to say, there's nothing political <laughs> about him building a bowling alley in the thing. It happened. There's, there's no argument. It happened. He did it. Right. And I think it's awesome. Uh, you wanted the best Chinese food in the world, you got to go to the source. That's the, that's what I learned from him. <laughs> Before we get to the show proper, I do have our very popular and always well-received trivia question, and I alluded to it at the beginning of the show. Hey, Jeff. Uh, uh-oh. Uh, what? And the song by Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly, with his song. Uh, much like the song You're So Vain by Carly Simon, the song Killing Me Softly is about a particular person and a particular song. Who is the he and what is the song Oh man! Being referenced in Roberta Flack's hit single, and also killing, covered by the Fugees, softly with his song, huh? Killing me softly. All right. With well, at the end of the show, I'm gonna get fifty percent of this right. All right, but this is gonna be the week beginning April the tenth, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is indeed April the tenth, nineteen fifty-three. The film House of Wax, starring Vincent Price, premieres in California. Why is House of Wax an important film, Bill? Because Charles Bronson's in it in his first role. <laughs> <laughs> partially the other part is it's the very first full-length 3d color film that was produced and released by a major studio oh okay and it, uh, it features like one scene of true 3d in it with vincent price hitting a uh i'm actually making no, the most even vincent price no it's just a, a, that scene is hilarious because 3d movies in the 50s went through a very big popularity surge the House of Wax, I mean, there was a lot of 3D in the movie, but it was more, you know, depth, not yes. so much gimmicky stuff. Yeah, it but, wasn't gimmicky stuff. But people wanted the gimmicky stuff. They filmed this scene where a guy is like outside of a theater, you know, playing with a paddle ball and just shooting it towards the, the camera. That scene has almost nothing. Actually, it doesn't have almost nothing. It has, it has actually nothing. nothing. <laughs> Actually, nothing to do with the rest of the movie. They just inserted that scene into the movie so that 3D moviegoers would be, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ah. It is in 3D, and that's why I have this massive headache from these polarized glasses. I get it now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. When I went to Hollywood, 
I was on the Warner Brothers Backlot Tour, mm-hmm. and the tour guide said, does anybody have any particular movies or television shows that they like so I could point out different things? And not to make fun of anybody's anything, but I was one of like five English speakers on the tour. The rest were all nationals from all over the world, and nobody right. really spoke English. They were just kind of like there, you know? Right. So nobody's offering any kind of suggestions. So me, Mr. Big Mouth, in the back of the tour van, I raised my hand. I was like, horror movies? She's like, all movies? I go, no, 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 not that wide of a brush. Horror movies. She's like, oh, okay. So we go around, and then she stops at this like one little alcove, and right. she goes, hey, Mr. Horror Movie, do you recognize that? And I'm like, no. She's like, <laughs> have you ever seen Vincent Price's House of Wax? I go, oh, oh, that's the paddle ball sequence. <laughs> Shot on some like useless Universal Studios backlot. Yeah, you know, exactly. Building yeah, facade, it was, yeah. yeah, it was Warner Brothers. But like, yeah, I was all excited about it. And then I start talking about, yeah, and the scene has nothing to do with the movie, but it was filled in 3D and they eventually kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> told me to calm down because yeah, yeah that's that's it's really not that exciting. Let's continue on. Yeah. You know, anyone else have a movie they like? Maybe something that was funny or uh, <laughs> didn't feature a paddleboard. No, I'm going to uh, ask right. you a question that I already know the answer to. But did you see the remake? I have not seen the remake, but I saw the original House of Wax at Cinema 140. Oh, really? It back in it was like 1980. 1980- Three or eighty four, it came around again as yeah, what, a, there was yeah, a big three D boom. Yeah, there was a big three D boom in the eighties too, and I saw House of Wax in the theater as well. <laughs> I wonder if we were at the same show it, before we knew each other in high school. Yeah. That yeah. would have been that's something. Look at that, yep. kids. All right, moving on to the eleventh. Hey, look at this another uh, another movie in three D at that <laughs> April the eleventh, two thousand and twelve. The first of the ensemble Avengers movies comes out. Mm-hmm. So, in the, yeah, in the MCU, this was the first Avengers movie with every, with all your favorite superheroes, with Iron Man and Captain America and the Hulk and Thor and Black Widow and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, like a funny phenomenon with the Marvel films, I think, and superhero movies in general, mm-hmm. is it's oversaturation. Yes, that's a huge issue. If you work in a can, a place that makes candy, I used to go mm-hmm. to this place every year to buy Christmas candy. Yep, in Salem, Mass, called like Harbor Sweets, and they would tell us when you, they came in as you went in to watch how they made all this chocolate, this fine, fine chocolate stuff. Oh, our employees can eat as much candy as they want. Really, I was like, that's pretty good. You can eat chocolate all day. No way. And they say, like, usually after the first week or so, no one ever wants to eat chocolate again that works here. <laughs> and what what happens is you just get tired of it. It, it you lose your taste for this stuff. Right. And I, I think that what we're seeing is is with these like you know Marvel puts out sixteen tentpole pictures a year, and I can't tell one film from the other anymore. And I have a hard time staying focused on the interlocking plot lines and. I don't know. I think other people feel this way too, and they get fatigue with these. Yeah. And while the Avengers wasn't the first to do this, the Avengers was the first was the culmination of the first phase of the Marvel universe coming together, and was great, was beautifully balanced, mm-hmm. and really well done. It's just repeating that cycle over and over again for like thirteen or fifteen years is just too much. Yeah, there's over forty movies, and there's the TV series. 
on Disney to keep up with it. It, it really is too much. I don't know if it was just great timing because Endgame came out like not long before the pandemic. I don't know how many months it was. It wasn't right. long, though. Endgame was fine, and Endgame was a great bookend. And even though I do love the Spider-Man movies, and Spider-Man Far From Home is like my favorite Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like I'm, I don't want to say I'm all done with the Marvel, but uh, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I definitely don't keep up with it as much as I did. I, I ended up go- kind of going that way with all superhero stuff, and I'm a DC guy, and mm-hmm. I. I never liked the DC films either when they were standalone or when they aped Marvel or anything. Yeah. And I don't like in I don't watch indie superhero movies. I just I just I've lost. I don't even write superhero stories anymore. Like it's so yeah. oversaturated that it's just it's uh, I'm like the guy at the candy factory who's been yeah. there for 20 years and they say, "Want some chocolate?" Oh, God no. <laughs> so with the MCU and the Star Wars movies that had come out too, which now there's a billion TV series of them as well. Right. I remember going to see the horror movie Hereditary yes. in the theater. And that movie is very slow and very quiet. Right. And I freaking loved it. It was yeah. such a great kick the jukebox moment because every other movie I had seen for the past 10 years was just a lot of action and flashing lights. It was nice to go see just a nice, thick horror movie. Yeah. For me, the best experience I had at the cinema for a year was seeing Pearl, which I didn't realize was a prequel to some horror movie that I've never seen. <laughs> That's the be- Pearl is the best movie I've seen in like 10 years. It was oh, wow. glorious. It was fantastic. It was everything I wanted in a movie. And it was right there. And I absolutely loved every nanosecond of it. I'll have to look for it because I I like horror. All right. right, Moving on to the 12th. April 12th, 1853. (laughs) New York enacts a $50 fine for parents of children between the ages of 5 and 15 who skip school. And 50 bucks in 1853 is the equivalent of like almost two grand today. Jesus. That's That's a lot of cabbage for having a kid who skips school. Now you, now, now you take somebody like when we were in school, we knew f- several people that skipped school all the freaking time. Yes. Now that runs into a lot of freaking money at that point. Two thousand five. You skip for a week, does. that's ten grand. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in probably in eighteen fifty three, it was more. I don't think kids were skipping school to go to senior skip day and hang out at you know, Horseneck Beach. Yeah. The equivalent of whatever that was in New York State. It wasn't just the city, I'm sure. Right. But, you know, I'm pretty sure it was kids would be yanked out of school to harvest crops in the before there was summer vacation or uh-huh. to work on, like, if the family all sewed clothes together in a tenement building in New York City, that's probably what they did as well. Right. And it was a way to keep kids going to school and not being exploited for their labor, which would get way worse in the decades that followed 1853 <laughs> until laws had to come into play saying you can't hire kids to, like, dig coal and, you know, sew shirts together at four years old. But, you know, this was probably the, the first law that was that was picking around the edges of child labor by making education mandatory. And also an educated society tends to be a more successful society. And as a new nation, the United States in 1853 is it's less than 100 years old. Right. Um, you know, you're still trying to compete on the world stage with countries that have an education system that's been built up for centuries Whenever I was in high school, my mom didn't really have a big issue with me skipping school once in a while. I would be like, hey, ma, can you call in? I don't want to go to school today. 
And it would always be the same three questions. She was like, are you in class or are you in shop? I'm in class. Do you have any tests today? No. Are you passing? Yes. All right. And then she would call in. It had to be more esoteric when I was a kid. If Now, you, you've met my mother. Yes. Delightful woman. My mother was not receptive to things like, hey, mom, can I take the day off? She would say, like, absolutely not. But if I said, geez, mom, I slept so badly last night. I had the worst dream. There was a school bus accident and, like, there was flames everywhere and I was trapped and I couldn't shake it. She's, that's it. You're not going to school today. So... <laughs> That would be it. That was a, that was the omen. Today's the day you stay home. I could get away with that once or twice a year. That would get me the mental day that I needed from school was that particular description of a bad dream of a school bus accident. And she was receptive to that, but nothing else. I'll have to try that on your mom next time I see her. I had to pr- <laughs> it was either that or I had to be pretty much sewing a limb back on or actively projectile vomiting to get out of school. Hey, Ma, and, catch. And even then, oh. you know... <laughs> If I was early enough in the morning, she'd be like, you're going to run out of stuff to throw up in another 10 minutes. (laughs) And you got 15 minutes until the bus comes. All right. Moving on to April the 13th, 1796. The first elephant arrives in America. A gift from. That was not the elephant sound. (laughs) That's not the elephant sound I was looking for. Uh, Apparently (laughs) a a gift from from India. Yes. I I would assume. Yep. Yep, a gift from India to guests to welcome the United States to being the first country to break off from British colonialism. Yeah, we'd only been a country for like 20 years at that point. Right? It came actually through Salem, uh, Massachusetts, through the harbor at Salem, Massachusetts, and arrived in the United States in Salem, Mass. Oh, wow. And in 1796 in the United States, of which there were only like 13 states, there are no zoos, there are (laughs) no animal hospitals, there are no like circuses. So no one really knows what to do with this big elephant that has arrived from India. And it gets pushed back and forth between other places in Boston and other parts of, of Massachusetts as a curiosity. But it's really difficult to take care of because this is not the climb that an Indian elephant is used to living in. No, 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 certainly not. I remember when I was a kid asking my father, what's the difference between, uh, I believe we call them Asian elephants now, but yeah, Indian elephants, yes. the gray ones. What's the difference between an Asian elephant and an African elephant? And he says, basically, an Asian elephant can walk underneath an African elephant. I mean, he's exaggerating. That's hyperbole. But there's no confusing the two if they're near each other because African elephants are absolutely enormous. Right. Yeah, I don't think Uh, they can be tamed either. and, And Asian elephants can. Yeah, they're yeah they're much more docile, and it was that was 1796. I don't know, it was like 90 years later is when we got the Statue of Liberty from France. I'm just imagining that. I'm not gonna say phone call; it would be a letter at that point. But it's like uh, we have a present we'd like to send to you. <laughs> it's like that's not another freaking elephant, is it? <laughs> no, no more. Not an elephant. This is a lovely uh, tall statue of a, a woman. Huh? What's kind of cool about the elephant? This was an elephant known as Old Bet. That's the the first Indian elephant in the United States. And it ended up being owned by a guy who took it up and down the coast and exhibited it for 25 cents of of view. And it ultimately became the first exotic animal attraction in the United States. So technically, it started in Boston. I'm saying that with air quotes because Salem is close to Boston. And it ended in New York. So the rivalry begins maybe not with the first monkey on display, (laughs) but possibly (laughs) the first elephant on display. 
that started in Boston and went to New York. All right. What do we got for the 14th? April 14th, 2000. Metallica. American heavy metal band, Bill. Have you ever heard of them? Um, I've seen them around. Uh, they file a lawsuit against a peer-to-peer file sharing service known as Napster. And huh. ultimately, this leads to a big groundswell of lawsuits against and legislation kind of against file sharing. And yep. a, an ultimately a change in the way that music is distributed, paid for, managed, and created and made available to fans. I don't so, know if that's good or bad when I say it that way. But at the time, it was bad. So the popular myth is that Metallica was like, hey, these kids are getting our music for free, and, and we want the money. That was a popular myth. Right. And that's kind of not what happened. From what I understand, and, and of course, the truth is not as good as a story as the fiction. Let's put it that way. Right. So the, tru- the, the fiction lives on, but the truth was Lars Ulrich gets a phone call from like one of his friends or whatever it was. And they're like, dude, turn on this radio station. And the radio station was playing this unreleased Metallica song. Right. That they had found, you know, on Napster. And it was kind of like a demo version. So it was really rough sounding. It hadn't been polished. It kind of sounded like crap. And it it shouldn't have been out there. Right. It was unreleased on purpose. And it was unreleased. Yeah. Right. But here's them. They're playing it on the radio. And Lars is like, whoa, whoa. How did they get that? Right. They're not supposed to have that. It wasn't so much about them not getting the money, although that is a factor. I'm not saying that Metallica right. didn't bring that up. I'm sure Gene Simmons had a couple of things to say about it as well. But <laughs> but what it came down to was Metallica wanting to control where their music ends up. Right. And I could totally see that point of it. Yeah, there's you know? definitely an argument to be made that in that respect, they were absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's an argument on the other side, too, which is ultimately the cost of the technology to record and release music should have made the end product less expensive in the intervening 20 years that CDs had been manufactured because the materials to produce them, the product, the the processes to produce them and the the way that they were transported and marketed made them to be really inexpensive things to sell. Right. Like around still, that time, they were still selling at twenty or twenty-five bucks for you know ten songs. No, it wasn't that much uh, at that time? I was just about to say, record stores. You could buy a cassette version of the album and run you about nine dollars, ten dollars, and then if you bought the CD, it would run you like fifteen or sixteen dollars. And when it comes down to it, in actual manufacturing and production, it's probably cheaper to produce CDs. Yes. You know, there's no reason for it to be $5 more. Well, the other component in the argument is that let's say you wanted one song off the uh-huh. record. You yep. had to still go buy the other nine. And you ended up with sometimes nine filler songs. And Napster gave people the ability to just get that one song and build playlists of individual songs without having mm-hmm. to go through the rigmarole of finding 35 CDs and a tape deck and synchronizing all that jazz and, and everything else, it made things a lot easier. It made the technology accessible. Right. And you know something? It's not like Napster was the first like that because I was collecting, uh, not me, uh, another guy, uh, Will with two L's, was collecting MP3s over the internet through news groups. 
Right. Yes, but the, what again? What Napster makes the technology it, different is is accessibility. Yeah. Yes. Napster made it easy. I could type in "Urge Overkill" and it would show me everybody who had an "Urge Overkill" song or viruses described as "Urge Overkill" songs <laughs> that I could then download in at a compressed MP3 for the time, 128k yep. uh, kilobits. Um, would take me about 20 minutes to download one song, but then I had it. I could play it in Winamp, and it was there. Urge Overkill right. gets no money from me, right? Yeah. Even though I might have bought an Urge Overkill record in the past and had a couple of Urge Overkill CDs in my collection, I didn't have them in that format. Right. That sure. I could just listen to without having to go find the CD and put it in the thing and put the thing on and then have to manage it. All right. Uh, moving on to the 15th. Uh, we have one of our unusual holidays, Jeff. April 15th <laughs> is known around the country as Tax Day. What tax a tax day, day indeed. it was. Yeah. Um, tax day was. I was under the assumption that it, April 15th is still full on get it in the mail postmarked by the midnight on the 15th tax day. And right. yet that is not the case, as you tell me. No, no. April 15th is traditionally the deadline for filing your taxes. But since the pandemic, they've kind of stretched that out a little bit. It used ah. to be that you as an employee, your employers had to get all of your paperwork in the mail and to you by like January 31st. And that is never the case. I work, you know, uh, sometimes as many as five jobs over the course of the year. Uh, you know, these are usually just seasonal jobs, but this year I had like- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When you say that, all I can hear is like that segment from In Living Color with like the Jamaican family. How many jobs you got? I got 14 jobs, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I only I only I, got the, the five this year, so I have you know I, I have to wait for all my W fours to come through the mail. And one of the jobs I won't mention names, but one of them I, I swear they just sit around and wait for midnight on January thirty first to get it in the mail because they feel like they can. Well, now that deadline has been pushed out to I think the middle of February. I know I didn't get my bank statement until hmm. mid February, so I couldn't even bring my tax, my pile of uh, papers to my tax girl for her to make fun of me for. Yeah, it was funny. I didn't realize that there was that they had extended it past the, the 31st of January to, for the employers to have to have that paperwork for you. As I was doing the taxes for me my, my and my kids, mm -hmm. um, they do their taxes individually now because of their ages. Yep. And I was waiting for a W-4 form for my son from one of the places that he worked last year. And I'm like, where is this? They should have sent this by the 30th. And he's like, I don't know. I'll, I'll email them. And they basically told him, like, they're, they're not out yet. I'm like, well, how can it not be out? It's February 10th. That's the way for your kid to make fun. I, I, is that supposed to be in the mail by the 31st? And he'd be like, yeah, whatever, boomer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, old man. <laughs> yep. As you just keep believing that. So so the, I guess the big question with any of our crazy holidays, Bill, is how do you spend your tax day? How do I spend my taxes, so to speak? How do you celebrate tax day? Uh, I don't. But you, <laughs> traditionally, by April 15th, that money has come and gone quickly. I was going to say, I celebrate tax day by having already spent my tax return many, many weeks before April 15th. That's yep. that's my tax day celebration. So I have three, not major purchases, but three purchases that all are around the same amount of money in okay. between five and $700. I have three of them that my taxes are going to be leaning towards. Yep. Uh, one, I want a PlayStation 5. Damn it. Uh, I want a new air conditioner. And I need a new stove. So got to keep that the, PlayStation Five cool, Bill. Yeah, and also I'm going to run the heat, at, uh, the the stove at the same time, and just let let it fight it out with the air conditioner. 
<laughs> Look, if I'm paying 20 cents per kilowatt hour, I'm going to get my money's worth. No, 25, 25 in Massachusetts. <laughs> 20 cents. I was about to say, what do you got, coupons? <laughs> That's what you pay if you hook your bicycle up to the house and pedal <laughs> for two hours a day. All right, and let's wrap up the week. All right, April 16th, 2017, the world record gathering of Charlie Chaplin lookalikes of 662 of them at the Menoir de Bon, the Chaplin Museum in Veve, Switzerland. So 662 Charlie Chaplin showed up at the Chaplin Museum. I'm sure the staff were friggin' thrilled. What a niche little thing to do. Right. Like, I mean, imagine that you're like, hey, let's have a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. How many people do you think are going to show up? I don't know. 20? <laughs> 20 or so? Like, he died in, like, 1974. He, you know, he was popular at the turn of the century. No. Nope. Right, yeah. 662. That, I, I bet you craft services ran out of food. I wonder if there are one or two that snuck in there dressed as, like, pre-Nazi Germany Adolf Hitler, just to blend <laughs> in. That's yeah, I am one of those Charlie Chaplins, yes. <laughs> that is actually a curiosity, a little piece of, it might be urban legend, but we'll, we'll treat it as the truth, is the reason why Hitler had the paintbrush-style mustache was because Charlie Chaplin had the paintbrush-style mustache, and Hitler thought that that would make him more appealing to the people if he looked like, not if he looked like Charlie Chaplin, but if he had the same facial hair as Charlie Chaplin because Charlie Chaplin was very popular and famous. Now I'm going to disabuse you of that right now. You ready? Yep. It's, it's because he was poison gassed in World War One, and the mustache that he had at the time went outside of his gas mask. And that's what caused him to inhale poison. So he always wore it cut after that, after the end of World War I, uh, in case he ever had to put a gas mask back on. That is awesome. I didn't know that Charlie Chaplin was in World War One. It's true. It's true. He was a, he was a little tramp brigade. Little tramp brigade. Yes. He fought at the Battle of Jackie Coogan's parents. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. April the 10th, 1929. Actor Max von Sydow, probably best known as the Brewmeister from the movie Strange Brew with Bobby Doug McKenzie. <laughs> yes, uh, at Elsinore Brewery. Yes. Uh, also, very, very well known as Ming the Merciless in 1980s Flash Gordon, my favorite science fiction film from that era, mm-hmm. or as King Osric, the best character with the best lines in Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And obviously in uh, 1973's The Exorcist, Yep. He had a he was super famous in the 50s and 60s too in Swedish cinema. He was in a bunch of Ingmar Bergman films. Right, yep. Our younger listeners might know him as the emissary at the very beginning of The Force Awakens who hands Poe Dameron the the USB drive essentially. I don't remember that scene, but that's Max. He was sneezing you miss him. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the 11th. April 11th, 1947. American TV actor and sometimes film actor Meshach Taylor. He was a probably very tall, for- broad-shouldered. Yeah, uh, probably, probably best, best known as probably best known for Mannequin on the Move, <laughs> the film that that inspired Mannequin on the Move. Mannequin. Yeah, Mannequin. Yeah. <laughs> Where he uh, played Hollywood, Hollywood Montrose. Character yeah. in that terrible movie. Yeah, uh, Mannequin gets a six, uh, a five point nine rating. Over on uh, IMDb, and Mannequin on the Move gets 4.4. So, right. a bit of a step down. That is definitely a step down, and that's out of a score of 4 billion. Yes. Yeah. 
So, yeah, 20% so. on Rotten Tomatoes versus 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. He's a very funny actor. He's got he very, very good comedic timing. He was, again, he's the only thing in that film that is worth watching. And that film is worth watching for his performance. Like, I'm not talking smack on, on Meshach Taylor at all. When no. I say that sometimes you have all the ingredients, all really good ingredients, and they just don't come together right. And that, oh, is, ser- that is the case of that film. Seriously, if anyone's going to quote anything from that film, it's always going to be Hollywood. It's going to be Hollywood, yeah. yeah. Now, I had a hard time remembering who was in it. I'm like, it's An- A- Anthony Edwards, Andrew Garcia. That's Andrew. Anthony- Andrew, Andrew, what the hell is his name? Yeah, see? And then Kim Cattrall, right? And I had yes. to think about it. But like, as soon as you say mannequin, Hollywood, I know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what Meshach Taylor looks like. I know what his sunglasses look like. I know what clothes <laughs> he has on. And that, that'll Andrew, tell you everything. Andrew McCarthy. For the Andrew record. McCarthy. Yes. So he also was a longtime character on the show Designing Women, which was really popular in the early 1990s mm-hmm. and was really, really, really funny on that show, too. And apparently he was in Damien Omen 2, which I don't remember him at all. I don't remember either. Nope. All right. Moving on to... April the 12th, 1932. <sighs> Dude with a ukulele. Tiny yes. Tim. Tiny Tim. I like Tiny Tim's very first record a lot. Uh-huh. There's some really interesting music on it, and it's listenable, even though it's the sort of grandfather of outsider music. My friend Jack, who's probably listening, has this affinity for Tiny Tim, and so does my friend Ryan. And to a lesser extent, so do I. It starts out as one of those things where you're listening to it ironically. But as time goes on, you're like, you know what? I actually kind of like this. It's Yes. It's odd. And it's very weird the way he sings with this like weird falsetto. But like the song Living in the Sunlight, you listen to it, you're like, this is actually an okay song. It's just sung really weird. He was an odd dude. Do you ever see Shakes the Clown? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. I've seen that Tiny movie Tim, many, many prob- times. Probably best known for Shakes the Clown. <laughs> uh, Tiny Tim used to be a regular performer at Spooky World whenever we were in Berlin. Oh, really? Yeah, and he lived at Fall River for a while. Wow. Yeah. Again, like I said, I like the God Bless Tiny Tim record. That's his, his first studio album. And there's almost... Nothing better than sitting in like a CD bar that has a, a wall-mounted, internet-connected jukebox yeah. and spending $10 to play that song over and over again over the course of a night when it's really busy. Let me tell you something about my friend Jack that will turn you into an instant fan, okay? Ah. Jack hooked up this like old radio. Whenever you touch it, it turns on. Like all you have to do is pick it up, move it. It turns on, and it starts playing Tiny Tim Living in the Sunlight. Nice. And it doesn't shut off until the battery dies. (laughs) I definitely need one of those. Yeah, it's amazing. I saw the radio over at my friend's house, and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God, my mother used to have one of those radios. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. And then he told me about it. it. I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's that's very funny. <laughs> I like outsider music. So him at the same time, you know, Wildman Fisher, all of these guys had a place to be on TV too. They all landed on Laughing, mm-hmm. which was a great showcase for like weird ass people, I guess, <laughs> with instruments and gave them a foothold in the industry. 
We don't really have that anymore the same way that we did then. Yeah, you have YouTube, but everything gets like lost in the shuffle, right? Right, right. All right. Trust me, I got a podcast I've been trying to promote for three years. <laughs> All right, well, moving we on. We only to- get ourselves on laughing. We'll be there, Bill. <laughs> All right, moving on to the 13th. April 15th, 1950. The man underneath nine million pounds of latex, depending on what film you see him in, Ron Perlman, probably best known as Erg in the film Quest for Fire. <laughs> in a time when dinosaurs roam the earth. Probably uh, best known for the conservative television show host uh, character in the film The Last Supper, which is an amazing yes, film that amazing I recommend film. everybody. Yeah, Rod he Pilmer, was great. excellent in that he, movie. Yeah, he, probably best known as Hannibal Chow, the guy who sells kaiju parts in Pacific Rim. <laughs> no, uh, he is one of those actors that is in so much makeup in so many of his movies that when you see him out of makeup, you're like, yeah. That's that's what you look like, huh? Okay, all right. He looks he looks Didn't just like that. Hellboy, skin tone yeah. Hellboy. Yeah, that's what he looks like when I when I see him in anything. Like, oh, it's skin tone Hellboy. Yep, he must have filed his horns off. He does more than Montreal's, but he he became like super famous on TV in the 1980s for starring in the TV show Beauty and the Beast with um, Linda Hamilton. Linda Hamilton, and that made him a star, and he ended up making more and more films after that generally in monster roles but slowly but surely he worked himself out to playing himself where he was one of the two villains at the movie drive he played again when he played hannibal chow in pacific rim he just looked like himself he's been in a couple of action movies and stuff where he plays himself he's really good yeah really really and, good and and seems like a a cool enough guy definitely yep all right moving on to the 14th april the 14th 1960 Eight. If you were a Gen Xer, you know him as the biggest nerd in cinema, and then now he's this wide-backed, barrel-chested, just hulk of a dude. Anthony Michael Hall. I remember him, actually. Well, I don't remember him best for, but I mm-hmm. like him the most in the TV version of The Dead Zone that he Probably did in the early 1990s. Halloween kills. We're gonna kill Michael Myers. But I really liked him at, at, in the Dead Zone. That was that was yes. where he he that got was a out good of show. the. He definitely was a great show. He got out of the rut of being the kid from Sixteen Candles in that show. Yeah, yeah. Growing up, we've seen him in a lot of those like John Hughes and John Hughes esque movies. Mm-hmm. He was uh, Farmer Ted and uh, Sixteen Candles and right. Breakfast Club, and he was also in. The first vacation, which everybody seems to forget, is actually a John Hughes movie. But then, like, later on, I remember seeing him, and it wasn't even that much later on. It was, like, 1990. I remember right. seeing him in Edward Scissorhands, yep. and he had beefed up a little bit, and he played, mm-hmm. like, a, a bully jock. And yep. I was like, wait, 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 that's Farmer Ted? What happened? Yeah. Guy's been eating his Wheaties or something. Not improving his acting. He's always been a good actor, but I love that he took on more difficult and challenging roles he's definitely got to watch he's always good to see uh in material and even halloween kills (laughs) evil dies tonight jeff but he was good in it even though the movie was awful it's not the worst of that series it's It's actually the best one of those three all right moving on to the 15th april 15th 1990 actress emma watson who's probably best known as a student at brown university from the years of 2011 to now, she was she's Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series, and 
while she hasn't turned her back on Hollywood, definitely isn't making a bunch of stuff. No, not really. Why would she have to? I'm sure she's sitting on like nine jillion dollars from being in the Harry Potter, seven Harry Potter movies or 12 Harry Potter movies or 11 Harry Potter movies that were made. Yeah. And can do whatever she wants. Good actress right. for, especially someone who started as young as she did in that role. I kind of like that. Not just her. Like Daniel Radcliffe, he, you know, he's sitting on a big pile of money, just like I'm sure Emma Watson is. Yep. And he just makes these weird-ass movies that he feels like making. <laughs> yeah, like Swiss Army Man. Yeah, exactly yeah. like Swiss yeah. Army Man. Yeah. Rupert Gint, the other kid from the Harry Potter films, yeah. plays Ron Weasley, is in that uh, M. Night Shyamalan film, Cabin in the Woods. Like, yes. it's a third banana part. Like, yeah, you go do whatever you want. Like, you don't have to make anything anymore. Right. That's a nice problem to have. Yeah. Act because you want life. to act, not act because it's, you know... We're getting into a bigger conversation about art here. We, we are indeed. Well, circling back to Anthony Michael Hall, too, I, I'm sure that that was the case with him by the time he hit his not small enough to be like a child star years. Yeah. And can do whatever he want. Like, or Macaulay Culkin, who went off to do the Pizza Underground. All right. And we're going to wrap up the birthdays. April 16th, 1947, American basketball player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He just drag asses. For the season, and he only gives any effort when it's the playoffs. The hell he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also known as uh, Captain Over, Don Roger, Over, <laughs> Captain Roger, the co-pilot on airplane. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was in airplane. He also had a cameo role in Chevy Chase's Fletch. He got his start in film because he was a student of Bruce Lee in the early, late 1960s and early 1970s, mm -hmm. and. Beat the ever-loving bejeebus out of him in Game of Death. Oh, wow. a giant in uh, the big Pagoda of Death fight scene. I think he was in the Lakers. I don't know. I know he played basketball. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's yes. like his main thing. He was, he was a basketball player, but I don't know sports. Yeah. We've covered that before. I just know him from being an airplane. He was on the Lakers. He was. Uh, he's one of the foundational players that made that team super famous. Huh. He was the superstar on that team. The first like real superstar. Was he the superstar of the worst song ever? All right, Jeff. Last week we were talking about Weezer and I basically <laughs> just like put my fingers in my ears and I'm just waiting for the hate mail to, so, you know, to, to come flying in and stuff like that. Because yep. I know some people Did just absolutely adore that band. We, we will get some. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I messaged the girl that kind of like inspired me to use that song. And I was like, hey, just letting you know, we're going to be talking about Weezer in an uh, upcoming episode. And she's like, oh, that's not my favorite song by them anyway. <laughs> I guess that's okay. So as we were tipping over the sacred cow of Weezer yesterday, I had mentioned to you, I was like, why don't mm -hmm. we tip over another sacred cow this week? But instead of picking on a band that we don't know or don't care for, why don't we pick on a band that we both absolutely love? Yeah, I'm all for that. All right. So, Jeff, what band and what song are we taking apart this week? So, <laughs> this week we are talking about a song from the Umagumma album by Pink Floyd called Several Species of Small Furry Animals Gathered Together in a Cave and Grooving with a Picked. Yeah. Which, the uh, it's... 
I don't the know song, if this qualifies the, as much as a song. Yeah. But the song title is not nearly as weird as the song itself is, and it's a weird ass song title. Let's just play the clip here and let our listeners decide for themselves. <laughs> This is undefensible. It really is. So, 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 so the question is, like, picking the clip to play is difficult because this yeah. song grows from beginning to end. It starts out with squeaks and chirps, and then there's a rhythm that kind of comes into it, and then there's more squeaks and squawks and chirps and other things. And then there's a Roger Waters doing his ancient Scotsman impression, yelling in ancient Scottish about some damn thing. And yeah. it just culminates in all of that. Yeah, it's five minutes long, and to pick the weirdest 30 seconds was a challenge, let me tell you. I'm sure it was. So, like I do, I listened to Amagama today. This is an album that I don't listen to very often. This is a really weird transitional period in, in Pink Floyd's history. Right. This album came out in 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, the canon of albums from Pink Floyd is a little muddy because there's two movie soundtracks for like French films that they did. Right. So whether you count those as albums or not is questionable. But right. this was the first album that they did, you know, studio album that they did right. without Sid Barrett. Right. Uh, the first side, it's a double album, too. Mm-hmm. So the first side of the first album is live, and Sid's there. There's the yeah. some live tracks with Sid. And then the rest of the album, it's kind of like the Kiss solo albums, where there's a couple of songs that Nick Mason did by himself, yep. and there's two songs that Roger Waters did by himself. Right. And then there's some stuff that uh, Richard Wright did, and there's some stuff that David Gilmour did. But right. it's all like a like mini solo albums, so to speak. Right. And none of it's really that good. <laughs> it's 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 a transitional album for sure. It's it's before they were able to shake the the real influence of Sid Barrett and congeal into an album that would have a consistent sound. Right. Sort of from like metal was the one that came next, right? Yes and no. Obscured by Clouds is in there. Okay. The Obscured by Clouds was a French movie soundtrack. So that in the canon of albums, yes, yeah, I'm, but no, I'm but yes. Like, yeah, but there was like another album records. before metal called Adam okay. Hart Mother. Adam Hart Mother, right. So, But Adam Hart Mother is more like this record than it is like metal, and metal is more like what would come later than it is like this record. Yeah, they're, they're moving on. So Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett had that psychedelic element to him. But they were also a lot more, you know, what was going on at the time for like pop music. There were, yes. you know, a lot of four minute singles and it sounded a lot like British music. A matter of fact, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles and Pink Floyd's first album were recorded in the same studio at the same time. Right. And you can Using hear the same one- instruments sung by the same. <laughs> no, wait, that's not true. But you can hear uh, the Beatles influence on Pink Floyd and Pink Floyd's influence, influence on, the on the Beatles. Yeah. Yes. Let's drag ourselves back to this particular song on this uh, yeah. unusual record. As Bill and I 
have said multiple times on the show, we both like strange music. We both like outsider music. I like right. the Shags, and uh, we talked about Tiny Tim earlier and Wildman Fisher and yep, etc. And Julian Cope is my favorite weirdo. Yep, Julian Cope is your favorite weirdo. I love Julian Cope too. When you look back at this record and the several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pick, which I'm just going to call several species from now on, so that yep. we don't spend all night here. What you're kind of hearing is what other bands would do later in farting around with production equipment. And this is Roger Waters, who's like making all the noises and then stacking them up and then finding the rhythm in them and then building on the rhythm that he finds Mm -hmm. and then adding more animal noises and stacking them up. It's a song that you could they could never play live because there are no there's no instruments except for Roger Waters and building this whole song with effectively with sound effects, mostly created by him. I'm sure that there might have been some that weren't. But I can't tell you which ones were and weren't because they're, they're like a nine millisecond long chirps and cheeps. So, you know, when I was listening to it today and the part that I ended up using for the sound clip there, the yaka like that, I yep. was kind of in my mind juxtaposing it around with drum sounds. And I was like, that's a yes. very, it's very rhythmic. It would make a good drum yes. beat if you put like a kick you know, a kick, a snare, and a hi-hat in there instead of the barks and roofs and right. whatever they, those are. Yeah, This kind of thing would go on later in some of the music that Frank Zappa did later, in especially when he was using his synclavier to capture weird sounds and then stack them all up as, as if they were instruments. And the first time I remember hearing it, that kind of thing was in this song. And it didn't dawn on me until I was really listening to it closely today that the voice of the crazy picked at the end is Roger Waters. And it was only when his voice cracked a couple of times that I thought, hey, that's that's Roger Waters is doing that, isn't it? I have to turn, <laughs> like, turn the volume up and li- like, listen really closely in my good ear. This is another one that it, yep. I, I suffer with this song because in stereo, it's different than it is in mono. Right. And I can only listen to it in mono because I only got one ear on mono e mono. In listening to it, I, I never picked out that that was him. I thought like in some of the other later Pink Floyd records where they have other people who are providing the sort of weird vocal components. Right. That, that was him. And uh, it made me laugh out loud at how different his voice is, but the crack in his voice has not changed. There's a part in the song that it's really, really sped up. So you have, if you slow it down, you can hear it. But it's yeah. David Gilmore saying, well, that was pretty avant-garde, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And the last thing that Roger Waters says in that poem i guess you could call it at yep. the end yep he says and the wind cried mary and the wind cried mary the, well actually he says and the wind cried mary but yeah all right but this song does not kill me nope. there is another song that kills me softly jeff <laughs> we're back yes. around for our uh, our trivia question the very popular and always well received trivia question there was a hit single uh in the 70s by roberta flack called killing me softly with his song it kind of has a misnomer that it's about a relationship where the guy's just kind of like not really committing and, you know, she's in love, he's not kind of a deal. Right. But that's not what it's about at all. It nope. is about a performance of a song that really moved Roberta Flack, so much so that she wrote down the lyrics to the song while she was still in the club watching the performance. Who wow. is the he and what is the song that she's talking about? And I know that you you brought up Carly Simon at the beginning of this too. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that uh, at least apocryph- apocryphally that she wrote the song oh, You're you so- speak English <laughs> as an apocryphal story that she wrote the song You're so vain about James Taylor who she was married to. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that Roberta Flack wrote Killing Me Softly for James for based on a song that she saw James Taylor play in a club. But man, my knowledge of James Taylor's music uh, is less than it is of several small furry creatures gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pit. Uh, You can save the exposition because your answer's wrong. Oh, all right. The song in question is a beautiful song that I listened to today called Empty Chairs, which is actually based on a Vincent Van Gogh painting. Okay. And it is by former Worst Song Ever alumni, Don McLean. Huh. Wow. Yep. Yep. Roberta Flack was at a a club, the Troubadour in California, uh, watching Don McLean in concert. And he was playing the song Empty Chair, and she was so moved by it, she immediately grabbed a napkin and a pen and started writing down the lyrics to Killing Me Softly. Oh, and he wasn't doing American Pie, obviously, so she wasn't writing like a suicide note or a a (laughs) rant. Give this letter to Interpol to rescue me from this eight and a half minutes of terror and torture. It's actually on the same album, though. I'll have to go look for the song because I've never heard it. Yeah, My uh, my experience with Don McLean is literally one song long. Yeah, it's uh, it's got some nice lyrics to it. I liked it. Yeah, put it this way. That song, Empty Chair, won't end up as worst song ever. Ah, okay. Noted. And neither will Killing Me Softly. I think that's a great song. I do too. I, I like the Fuji's version of it as well. Yeah. One time, two time. All right. But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends about it. Do it now before the world comes to an end. Any minute. It's coming. Any day now. <laughs>